welcome to the Sporting History Podcast brought to you by the British Society of Sport History in association with the Institute of Historical Research. My name's uh, Jeff Levitt and this week, or in this episode, I'm introducing a paper that was given by one of our previous podcast guests, Helena Byrne, at the IHR last night. And Helena's paper um, discussed the history of women's soccer in Ireland uh, during the 20th century and right up to the present day, in fact, and is the basis for an ongoing project that Helena has where she's looking at the development of uh, women's soccer in Ireland. As you'll hear, Helena is also the curator of web archives at the British Library, and she talks quite extensively about how the web archives are developing, how um, you as researchers can access those web archives, and also how you can use those archives to search for data if you are researching the history of sports history. So it really is a very rich paper that we have uh, for you this week. So without further ado, I'll let uh, Helena take it away. Okay, so welcome to the uh, BSSH Sport and Leisure History Seminar here at the IHR. And today our speaker is a familiar voice to anybody who's listening in podcast land. That is Helena Byrne, uh, who was interviewed for the podcast earlier on this this year. Uh, Helena is from the British Library, where she works as a digital archivist. Curator of web archives. Curator of web archives, correction. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, today Helena is talking to us about um, women and Irish football with a paper titled Where Are We Now? A Review of Research on the History of Women's Soccer in Ireland. So for anybody who knows anything about women's football in Ireland, you'd know there's not much research. <laughs> so that's why this uh, paper is to review what was currently being done, but also then to outline possibilities for future research. Um, because sometimes people say, because it's such a big subject area that hasn't really been tackled in any great scale, um, that they don't know where to start or there might not be enough to cover, let's say, an academic dissertation. So this is the paper is supposed to um, kind of spark a conversation and to get more people talking about women's football in Ireland and to hopefully um, get more research going on the subject area. So um, I'm going to start now with uh, some of the previous research. So we can see here, this is uh, the first paper about women's soccer in Ireland. It was written by Anne Burke in 2006. And then quite soon afterwards, there was a follow-up paper in response to this by Katie Liston, which looked at more sociological um comments on the development of women's soccer in Ireland and both these articles are really really good but they focus on the formation of governing bodies onwards so around 1973 and they do make some reference for what was happening before but because there's been no research into it um, there's there's no other papers but then in 2017 I wrote a local study um, about indoor football leagues in 19 in Drogheda that started in 1966 and went on to um, definitely 1967. We're not sure if anything happened in 1968 because the newspaper trail kind of dies off around then. But um, this was a localised study by indoor football leagues, which kind of um, kind of springboard for outdoor soccer and outdoor Gaelic football as well for women. And then this current article. So there's only then four articles altogether related to women in soccer in Ireland. And none of these articles were written by anybody in the history department. So um, myself, I'm a librarian and um, Anne Burke works, works in a business studies department at UCD. And then Katie Listens, a sociologist who works in Ulster University. So um, there's still a lot more that needs to be done by the history research community. 
So um, I just kind of, when I was doing the research into what re uh, had been done before, um, there was actually um, a literature review published about women's football research. And so that kind of highlighted that there was only three articles, academic articles published in um, about Irish football. But also then I looked at um, monographs. So the BNB, which is the British National Bibliography, is a data set of... Um, so all the publishers publishing in the UK and Ireland um, submit to the BNB what they're going to be publishing that year. So this is for legal deposit um, reasons. So they, the legal deposit libraries knows what's coming out so they can prepare for publications and then request content from publishers if they don't get it deposited. So I, uh, and you can get data from this uh, set. So it's really interesting data you can get. So I looked at a small sample of um, publications from publishers based in the Republic of Ireland um, because I didn't have that much time to look at UK publishing more general because it's, it's huge, it's, it's very big, whereas in Ireland the publishing industry is quite small. So I looked at uh, content from 2012 to 2018 and there was, after I filtered out what was relevant for this study, um, I had 208 uh, sports publications. So some of these publications um, would be in print form but also some of them are digital forms and the publisher will be publishing both so there'll be duplicates in the data set because of formats. So when I reviewed it 75% had the word sport or history in the title and or description and so this shows that history is quite um, a big area for these types of publications and 25% of them are biographies so biographies is another big market for the sports publishing industry in Ireland. Uh, but only 3.5 books were entirely about women. So the point five being when Ireland won the Six Nations in men's and women's and uh, they had one book about it and half of it was looking at the men's uh, journey through the Six Nations and the other half was about women. So um, so it's very small, like 3.5 out of a six year period is pretty bad. <laughs> and uh, in tw But 2018 uh, was a bit of a landmark year. So it's the first publication of an autobiography of a female GA star. So. And this is the kind of um, kind of first type of football and women um, publication. So uh, potential research methods then, since there's not that much in the literature already, we need to look at more primary sources to document this and to um, make the information more accessible for future research. So the things I'm going to talk about are web archiving and uh, looking at newspaper um, for research and then oral history. So today, like we're doing the podcast now and Jeff is recording it on his phone, there's so much you can do with a smartphone these days. And most researchers, when they go to an archive now, actually just take photos on their phone of the content to uh, research later. So uh, there's a lot we can do with our phone and technology is getting easier. So, um, but with some technology, it's especially like web archives, it's more relatively new. Um, uh, resource for researchers, especially historians, to use. So uh, this is going to give a little bit more information about what we can do and what questions we can ask about football. So web archives. So just a bit of background into web archiving in the UK, So um, and especially in Ireland as well. So in Ireland, the National Library of Ireland is uh, collecting on a permissions basis. So there's no legal deposit yet in the Republic of Ireland for non legal deposit. They've now recently changed copyright regulations, but it excludes web archives. So there's no national mandate to collect uh, websites. So it's on a selective basis. So they do have some curated collections, which are really good. 
and there might be some stuff relevant to football, but there's a lot of stuff that they won't have because of the legal regulations aren't there to support their collecting. But then there's also the Public Records Office in Northern Ireland who do um, small-scale web archiving. And because they're a Public Records Office, they don't have any legal mandate to do any large-scale collecting. But what they do do is collect content related to uh, public offices and they've got public funding within Northern Ireland. And they, um, but they, again, they have to do it on a permissions basis. So there might be some stuff that you might want, but it might not be there, but they do do stuff to do with Stormont as well. So any regulations related to the women in sport would be in their web archive. And also both those web archives are fully open access. So you can browse them from your devices uh, anywhere. And then in the UK, we have um, the UK Web Archive, which is made up of the six UK legal deposit libraries. So that's the three national libraries, uh, British Library, National Library of Scotland, National Library of Wales, and um, then also three university libraries. So uh, Bodleian, uh, Oxford Library and uh, Cambridge and Trinity College Dublin. And we kind of have what they call um, a grey archive. So partly open access, partly uh, on-site access. So most of the collection is on-site only because of our legal deposit regulations means we can collect everything published in the UK, but it can only be available in a reading room and we get unless we get express permission from the site owners. And as you can imagine, um, getting in touch with people is quite difficult. Most people don't put their email address on it. or And then when we send out the permission request, it's an um, automated email, so it looks like spam. And we're asking for personal information, so not everybody replies. Some people do call back just to check if we're real. So, uh, so there's only a very small percentage of the whole collection would be open access. Whereas the National Archives and Parliamentary Archives uh, collections are completely open access because they've got a much smaller remit. And their regulations, uh, legislations um, supports them in collecting the National Archives, all the government publications, and then parliamentary archives, all the parliamentary related uh, publications, and they're all open access. So we do, the Web Archive does, UK Web Archive does collect content that would be relevant, you know, collected also by the National Archives and the Parliament Archives, so there is some overlap. But the way that we collect would be different, and sometimes the time seems to be different, so sometimes it's worth if you're looking at one to look in all of them to see if there's any uh, differences in what you're looking for and um, so but also there's other web archives internationally and the best way to kind of see if a URL that you're looking for um, is being archived somewhere else and is open access you can look at the time travel memento web, uh, web page and this is kind of like a union catalogue for open access web archives so it's one central search so you put your URL, exact URL in, and you can refine it by what time dates you want to look at. And that will bring you back all the web archives that have collected that website. And they'll, uh, in a certain time, and they'll tell you how many days or years it's out from the dates you were looking for. Most of the time, it's just Internet Archive, um, because that's the largest international open access web archive. But a lot of times you'll also get content from the Icelandic Web Archive or from Portugal as well, or Library of Congress. And then so as I work in the British Library, this is a little bit more detail about our access because it is a little bit um, complex So <laughs> because of the regulations that make it difficult. So we've got mixed access and you can access what we have through uh, just to see what we have, what we hold in our website. So you can go to uh, webarchive.org.uk and that will bring you to the website and through that you can search our interface and it has most of our content up until maybe about a year or so ago. 
and that will bring back searches. But when you search for keywords and you have to use Boolean logic to search for it, so and ors, nots, and inverted commas, um, it brings back a lot of results. So um, it can be quite challenging then to refine through that. But it will tell you what is open access and it will tell you what is um, reading room only. So at least then you can identify what content you want to look at. And um, this will, if you look on your own personal device, it'll default to what is open access. So if you want to see what is legal deposit as well, that's not that you have to visit for, you can just change the tab on the side. And uh, we also have curated collections. So we have over 140 curated collections on different topics and themes. And sports is a big area that we've been collecting on. So we've got one general sports collection. And um, when you click into that, you'll see lots of subsections and that's classified um, using catalogue language of like ball sports. And then if you click into that, it breaks down into five foot uh, with a racket, with a club. And it's more a general kind of collection of sites. Whereas we have a dedicated football collection and the football collection focuses on all codes. And we have a subsection for Gaelic football, uh, rugby and soccer and then other. So any other type of foot and ball game. With rugby, if you check into that, it will then subdivide into um, union and league and then click into them and they'll subdivide into regions. So Ireland, Scotland, Wales, England. Um, but our soccer one is more complex and more developed. So we've got a lot more subsections. We also have the different home nations uh, divided into it, but we also have different areas. We collect on fans, commercial stuff, governing bodies, um, history and research as well. So there's it's quite a big collection and it's growing. And all three of those collections are growing and we're always looking for more people to collaborate if they have a subject expertise in certain sports areas to get involved. So we're collaborating with the Wimbledon Library as well at the moment and they're developing a subsection of the, uh, so it gets a little bit, the tree can get a little bit longer. So it's, you click into the sports collection, then you click into ball sports, then you click into buy racket and then you click into tennis and then Wimbledon are curating this subsection just purely on tennis. And um, so we're always open to working with other organisations and individual researchers to develop these uh, different sporting areas. And then we also have um, the Shine interface. And this is a, it's separate from our usual uh, web archive collection as it's all the .uk websites archived by the Internet Archive between 1996 and then April 2013 when the non-print legal deposit regulations came into effect. So that's April 2013 is when we could start doing our annual domain calls of just doing a broad sweep of the .uk domain and everything hosted in the UK. Um, so this is to kind of fill a gap before that. And um, this is um, openly accessible because we just you can just search through the metadata of that collection that was purchased by JISC and deposited at the library. And then all the links that to the um, content is linking out to the Internet Archive. And then we have some data sets as well. So if you go to open data, so if you've got some programming uh, coding skills, there's some really good data sets you could work with there and you could look at. Um, so one thing that I'd like to look at in the future, or if anybody else wants to do it, um, is to build on work done by Peter Webster, who um, has looked at um, churches in Northern Ireland and their websites, what domain, if they're on the .uk domain, and what were they really linking to. So it'd be really good to look at football clubs on the .uk domain. Well, how many of them are on the .uk domain? And a lot of the premiership football clubs are on .coms or .orgs. So uh, were they on a .uk and what are they linking to? Will you see a 
different transition of local community stuff at the start of the data set around 96 and when do you see them linking out to social media accounts that they have and then more commercial kind of advertising and stuff on their web so there's quite a lot of uh, potential there. So this is a screenshot from the Shine interface and so you can do a general search faceted and it'll give you links, uh, it's really good, you just use Boolean logic again and some search tips on the site. Um, but they also have a trends function, so you can uh, put some keywords in for a trends function and see how popular it is on the data set. So we have a graph here, and so I have um, just comparing the language that's used around football. So we've got women's football, ladies football, girls football, boys football, and men's football. And you can see that um, women's football is the most popular term out of all of them, ladies being second. Uh, oh no, sorry, that's girls and ladies is third, then boys, and then um, obviously then men's football, since most people don't use the term men's football, is last. But this actually is quite interesting, looking at the usage of the term men's football as well, because we can see um, it's kind of flatlining, and then it starts picking up a bit, and in the mid-2000s, late 90s, early uh, 2000s. And if you click on one point in this graph, it will give you a sample of 100 uh, sites to look at. And you can see the context of how they're being used and they link out to the Internet Archive so you can view the whole page. But it's quite interesting. At the start of the data set, it's mostly talking about women's football, but comparing it to men's football. So that's why the term is being used. But then if you get a bit later in the data set, then you get online shopping. So men's football is used more because they have to categorize it for online shopping catalogs. And then we get to 2012, there's a peak because it's the London 2012 Olympics and men's football is used more commonly there because the Olympics is really the only sporting event where the terms men's anything is used in relation to sport because they have usually have both men and uh, women events, so they have to classify it. Mm. So it's the only time it's really used. So that's why there's a peak in 2012. Oh yes, yeah, so I've highlighted that. <laughs> but uh, so it's, it's quite interesting what you can do and you can look at the usage and why they're being used in that way and you can look at the language used around women's football as well. It's because you could put in um, some phrases that are usually derogatory phrases that are used to describe women's football as well and just look at the context of who's publishing them and who they're linking to as well. So there's lots of potential for this uh, data set. So moving on to newspapers, which is what most people in uh, sports history use uh, for the resources. And um, because in some cases, it can be the only thing that's left for about the historical record. So um, especially when we're looking at um, women's football in Ireland in the early 1900s, there's no, nobody around to record that. And it doesn't seem to have survived in any formal records. So newspapers is the only source we have for this. So this is a newspaper clipping I have of a 1927 game that took place in Dublin. And in 1927, there was a team called Roger Glen went on tour with another team from Edinburgh, two women's teams. And they played matches um, in Belfast. I think they went to Dundalk as well. They were definitely in Dublin and then they were in Cork. And then when they returned to Dublin, Roger Glen played against a Dublin side. So the, the side has no name. It's just a Dublin side. And uh, we don't know where the women for this Dublin side came from. Were they in other clubs? There's no record to that. But uh, luckily, in the Evening Herald, they actually have um, a photo of the team, which is really rare. Because in the Irish Times, they have a match report. They don't mention 
except with the exception of one player who's referenced, there's no, we don't know who else is on that Dublin team. And so this is a really uh, unique find and um, it's really valuable as well because there's would be more cases of this out there if we had people looking for it. So um, when we're doing newspaper research though, many people are familiar and use quite widely the British Newspaper Archive. And so that has a lot of the digitized newspapers, but as we know um, from doing uh, Working with digitised newspapers with OCR, there's lots of issues, there's lots of fuzzy searching, not everything returns. So if I'm searching in the Irish Times for this match, uh, the Rutter Glen game, if I search women's soccer, ladies soccer, or um, those kind of terms for that time period, I get no results back. Mm. But if I search Rutter Glen, I get the results that I want. But I need to know the team named Rutter Glen to be able to find it. So sometimes it's quite difficult to retrieve content. So that's why sometimes, although it's more painstaking, looking at the hard copies, you can get more information sometimes from that as well. So sometimes we need a combination of methods. So uh, the British Library Labs has been doing a lot of work with researchers in different fields to help improve and uh, big data analysis of digitized newspaper collections. And uh, so in the paper, I kind of go into a few more examples of what kind of projects they were working on. Um, but then there's this uh, recent project that was launched by the British Library and the Alan Turing Institute. It's called Living with Machines. So I'm going to just read out from the press release exactly what the Living Machines project is. So it says, Living with Machines will see data scientists working with curators, historians, geographers, and computational linguistics, linguists, with the goal to devise new methods in data science and artificial intelligence that can help, that can be applied to historical resources producing tools and software to analyze digitized collections at scale for the first time. So it's going to be some time before we see the benefits of this project, but it's going to hopefully help then researchers who don't always have um, the technical skills to be able to do this kind of analysis by themselves to be able to access this content and to kind of get more um, accurate results from their um, search of digitized collections. So it's quite exciting. There is a lot of changes coming on in the future for sports historians. So um, going back to the hard copy. So this is um, indoor football leagues that ran in Drogheda in 1966 um, till about 67, 68. So this is in the British Library. They've only digitised. They start with the, old, with the oldest uh, newspapers and then they work their way back. So they've only digitised as far as the 1950s. So if you're looking at... Um, newspaper collections in the British Library for the 60s, you're looking at hard copies, which kind of, although, as I mentioned before, could take a bit more time, it's actually, you're probably guaranteed to get more results back on this subject area. So, um, that's why um, out of the last conference organize, that I attended, organized by Conor Curran in Prony, um, a group of us became together and decided to like, our resources to actually help document where we've seen sightings of women's football in Ireland because a lot of this content especially for researchers who are looking at the development of men's football in Ireland will come across this content but it's not relevant to their research question and then there's nowhere for them to kind of share that with the community so we got together to develop this um, uh, mapping Irish football project so it's, it's just a google form you fill in your citation details the name of the art, the paper that was publishing it, kind of the details about what page and what date, 
and then uh, the title of the article if it has one and then just a little summary of what it's about and then uh, looking at locations as well so where is it published and where are they referencing and then you can sign off with your name at the end of it so then when we publish the data set your name will be credited for that citation and it's a way for people to pool resources and to kind of give back to the research community then as well and you can see in the graphic here uh, although we'll be keeping nominations till 31st of December so please get involved there's a blog post um, on the uh, football collective blog and so if you just search mapping Irish football get involved um, you'll you'll see the link um, but you can see here on the map um, we've got a lot of content in the UK and in Ireland as well because there's teams are traveling from either side and then sometimes um, Irish newspapers are reporting about some especially in the early late 1800s um, reporting on the kind of the first big women's matches that were happening there and then um, going on tours to Ireland and then the red tabs are where papers are being published from so there's some being published from London and Dublin mostly and um, there is Drogheda and Dundalk as well there but um, because it's just kind of crowded you can't really see those coloured tabs so the data will be cleaned up and published online and um, it'll be done by the place of publication and the place of matches so we'll hopefully be able to clean up these uh, images a bit more and uh, we'll, the data set will be deposited with the British Library News Collection as well so there'll be more information coming uh, online in the next couple of months about that as well so that will be the data set itself will be preserved long term so that it's always going to be there for researchers to reference and then hopefully we'll add then the catalogue records for the newspapers that are mentioned as well so oral history um, so oral history for kind of now re it's really immediate needs to be done because the 1960s which we were just looking at in newspapers it's just still within living memory but it won't be long before it's not in living memory anymore like there's people that I've approached to interview and I have interviewed that have passed away since since now so it's uh, there's lots of valuable stories being lost every day and especially in the 1960s is a really important era because that's kind of the development before the governing bodies so it's like how did they get involved get organized and then develop um the kind of structures that we have today so which uh so these are two indoor football teams from Drogheda and it's just some of the stories that come out and kind of bring it back to life so this is a tip that they were given during their training so it's the first time they've ever played organized uh, football uh, don't be looking at their face look at their feet where the ball is keep your eye down where the ball is so it's because uh, especially with indoor football even for the men's teams they struggle to adapt to the indoor game versus the outdoor game because many of the teams on the men's side were playing Gaelic football or soccer and they're used to playing in open fields but whereas with indoor football you had a partition around the um I don't know if you'd call it a pitch or a court but <laughs> the playing area <laughs> and uh, so you had to, for uh, the few people that were in um, what they called boys clubs, which is basically youth clubs just for boys, um, they played indoor football and they were more adept at adapting to using the partition as an extra player. So you could get the ball around somebody by just using the wall. So it took, the, especially the men who were used to playing outdoor sports, longer to adapt to that um, addition. So, um, and as I mentioned before, that the indoor, these indoor football leagues um, they were in Drogheda and Dundalk they took place around the same time so Dundalk was first but there was only a matter of like a week at most between the two competitions starting and in Dundalk they organised as an all-Ireland competition so you had teams travelling from all over the country and Northern Ireland as well 
um, coming down to play in Dundalk. And in Drogheda, in the first competition they had, it was for the women's side, it was mostly teams just from County Loud that competed. Whereas in the second competition, you have more teams coming in from County Mead to travel to Drogheda. And then in the third competition, which was sponsored by the Evening Herald, you had a lot more teams from Dublin. So I think in the second competition, you had a few teams from Balbriggan, which is North County Dublin, but it's only at that time in the 60s, less than an hour away from Drogheda. But in the third competition, sponsored by the Evening Herald, you have teams coming from North Inner City Dublin, travelling to Drogheda to play, and which is quite significant back in the late 60s. Transport wasn't the same as it is now, and the roads it would definitely take you a lot longer to get there than it does now. And, uh, and then also this is kicking off in the late 1960s and the troubles are kicking off also as well. But you still have teams from Northern Ireland coming down to Dundalk to compete in the All-Ireland. And in the men's competition in Drogheda, you also had teams from Newry travelling down to Drogheda in the men's. And, uh, and then the indoor football kind of kick-started then outdoor soccer and um, Gaelic teams. And so you've got two photos here as well of uh, the top photo is the Dundalk ladies football team and then the bottom team is uh, it's from RD Hospital which is in Midloud and it's uh, just a work team and they had a Gaelic um, football team that competed and it's actually quite significant now actually um, so the top team there Dundalk ladies football club so the WFA the Women's Football Association just celebrated its 50th anniversary on the 1st of November I think it was the date and Dundalk Ladies Football Club were one of the founding members of the Women's Football Association and the only one of the 44 teams that established it from outside England. So it was quite interesting. Mm -hmm. So I've been going through more recently the Women's Football Association archive that's held at the British Library. And uh, it's really quite interesting to see how that the governing bodies in Ireland actually came out of the Women's Football Association because the Women's Football Association was the first governing body within that region of Europe and um, so Dundalk were one of the founding members, but in the second year, uh, when they had their AGM, there was Scottish teams joined, affiliated WFA, but also one team from Nigeria did as well. So, and, um, and Welsh teams signed up as well. And then um, after 1971, when um, UEFA started to get more involved in trying to make the men's associations take women's football on board, then that's when the governing bodies for women's football in Ireland and Scotland came about. And it was much later for Wales. Um, but there's quite a lot of interesting collaboration between them. And then also in the 1972, late 1972 is when the Northern Irish Women's Football Archive was, um, uh, Northern Irish Women's Football Association was set up. And then in early 1973 is when the Republic of Ireland, um, so the Women's Football Association of Ireland was established. And um, in the 1973 AGM for the WFA, um, there's, I'm paraphrasing here, but they said something in terms of football, we're united, even though they had two separate governing bodies. So there was a lot of cross-border collaboration going on at that time, which is really interesting because despite of all the political conflict, there was still a lot of solidarity in terms of developing women's football. And the first international match um, that both teams played after being established as go uh, their governing bodies was against each other. So actually, on that point, I should say that the um, Public Records Office in Northern Ireland do house a Northern Irish Women's Football Association archive as well, and they've got quite a lot of, um, it's a really good, rich um, resource. So um, just looking again at the potential of oral history, so indoor football in um, the Abbey Ballroom in Drogheda, so this is what it looked like, the Abbey Ballroom, so we've got one photo of it, and then when they had the show bands. So 
one week they'd have the top band in it, the next they were playing football. So like the Abbey Ballroom was one of the luxurious ballrooms of the time in, uh, in Ireland. Everybody still remembers the dance floor, how good it was, and the chandeliers. And they even had the Kinks played there. So they had really top acts, like the biggest show bands at the time, the Kinks, anyone, they were all there. And they'd play music on um, a Friday night to a Sunday night. And then uh, from the Monday to the Thursday, then they'd be playing indoor football. So especially because the floor, it's got a spring in it and because it's made for dancing and it's uh, wooden. After um, a weekend of dancing, it'd be very slippy on the Monday. So people remember losing their grip a lot. So another potential for oral history as well is looking at um, kind of the impact that the development of um, the women's game had and other sporting events. So, well, even just looking at the men's as well. So with indoor football, it's kind of hard to look at it just from one gender perspective because it was really groundbreaking in a lot of different ways. So in Ireland, in um, the GA had a rule um, that, ex um, sorry, <laughs> um, that banned um, their members from participating in foreign sports. So they couldn't compete and couldn't even go to watch a soccer game if you're a GA player, you get suspended and it could be a really big deal. You'd be excommunicated from your community if they really enforce the regulations. Um, but all the men's GA players were playing indoor football. And uh, so there's one anecdotal story I have from uh, somebody from a competition in, um, in County Monaghan and uh, they were playing against another team and they were wearing, because you had to wear a uniform, there was dress code. So most of the men's teams just borrowed Gaelic or soccer jerseys to wear. Because even if you weren't on team, you just bought a friend's jersey. But there was one set of, uh, one team, and they were all Gaelic football players, and they wore their Gaelic team jersey. But they all wore it with the number three on the back. Because uh, they were just worried that if, less in case they get reported, they're never going to know who they are, because they're all number three. So they wouldn't be able to identify them. But um, there doesn't seem to be many repercussions uh, for Gaelic football players. There's one uh, competition in Monaghan that it got shut down halfway through the competition because of a health and safety reason, but this is the late 1960s and health and safety wasn't that well enforced. So uh, there's a bit of a uh, discussion coming out in the local newspaper where the person who organized the competition raises the question to the uh, council about why was it suspended? And they say, oh, it's for health and safety. There was a fire hazard. And then, um, but it kind of even raising the question itself Kind of seems that maybe there was some political manoeuvring going on there to try and shut it down because it was very very popular but then actually that just spurred on the organizer even more to actually uh, fundraise and actually develop a sports center so um they built a purpose-built sports center and on the opening day they had an indoor football competition as well so and that actually had a really big impact on the local community because basketball was a sport that the community used to play but because of lack of facilities it died away and because of the new sports center they were able to pick up basketball again whereas on the other hand the camogie association the other longest running sporting organization for women in ireland um, didn't uh, occasionally had some bans on foreign sports but nothing long-standing like the gaa uh, but in 1967, at the height of indoor football craze, um, the Congress brought in that, a rule saying that any member who plays hockey or football thereby incurs suspension from membership of the association for a period of 12 months. So, um, so the photo I have up here is of a newspaper clipping of a team called the Casuals who 
really, really good uh, indoor football team. They won most competitions. And even now, a lot of the men who might not rate the women's teams remember the casuals and they remember how good they played. And the women's teams that played against them remember all the bruises they got as well. They were tough. <laughs> but it's the same. Everybody remembers the bruises they got from different teams. <laughs> but they were a tough team because they were really, really good. And um, they were also uh, played their camogie with Kilcurley, which is a small town in County Loud. And uh, Kilcurley were one of the most successful uh, clubs in the county. They'd won successive championships up until 1966. But because of the ban in 67, uh, they lost five of their key players and some of their some other players were playing on other teams as well so um, the team didn't win that year but then the, after the 12 month suspension when they were all back on the team then they kept winning for another couple of years as well so it was um, it was really had a really big impact on Camogie in County Loud so it actually had the opposite effect from what they wanted so uh, because of all the suspensions a lot of teams um, you know weren't playing Camogie and there was some um, little snippets in the newspaper at that time as well about people worried that camogie was a dormant sport in County Loud and that the only sport available for women at that time then would be indoor football and one of the teams um, so I, I showed you a picture previously of the Gaelic football team from RD so Town was another camogie team that had faced suspension and their team disbanded and they've never had a camogie team in that village ever since so um, it's had a, so it's really interesting to look at the relationships of indoor football with other sporting organisations and how that plays out so um, a little bit, this is another team from Drogheda who came out of an indoor football team and called Lord's Girls. And so some of the, the most important thing about oral history is that it's time sensitive, like the time is now, stuff needs to be done soon. And a national oral history project is needed and it needs to include the indoor football leagues. If you're looking at the development of sport, you need to look at kind of where it came from. So you need to look at the or indoor football leagues and the teams that were organized before the time of the governing bodies. So we need to take action soon. And as I mentioned, many of the people have become ill or passed away and are no longer available to be interviewed. So it's really urgent that we do something soon. And so just in conclusion, so this presentation has outlined a number of potential areas for further research to document the history of women's football. And as an individual, you can nominate websites to archive or and contribute to the mapping news project. So we're trying to form more collaborations with subject experts. So we have a lot in the, let's say our soccer collection, but, uh, or in some of this, it's more developed than maybe some of our other sporting areas, but even in the soccer collection, there's lots of gaps we have. So we need people to let us know what they're seeing online, what they're coming across, especially if you're using it in your research, you should just make sure that you're uh, making sure that's archived somewhere as well. So that if you cite it, then someone else can review it at a later stage. So a collective effort is needed um, from the research community in collaboration with memory institutions to document this history. And let me see, one. oh yeah, come up in the next one. But um, so the first step from this one is uh, you probably got an email from uh, the BSSH letting you know about call for papers for a women in sports um, conference in Ireland. So that's, um, I'm co-organizing that with the uh, County Museum Dundalk and it's an interdisciplinary um, conference, so it's people from lots of different areas, not just history, just looking at any aspect of women and Irish women and sports. So it, whether it be um, just focused on Ireland or Irish women in the UK or somewhere else in the world and any type of sport. And we're looking at, so the heading is um, sidelines, 
touch lines and hemlines. So we're looking at a wide variety of subject areas. So it could be just as a spectator or um, somebody in, you know, supporting another team as well. So maybe men's sports as well, or um, participating in it and looking at, hopefully we'll get some contributions from the media field. So looking at media coverage and um, lots of different areas. So keep an eye for that and hopefully submit papers. <laughs> And uh, so that's just a link there as well to uh, the coffee papers. And then in 2023, the Women's Football Association of Ireland will turn 50. So this should be a goal for the research community to work towards documenting all codes of women football in Ireland. And the, I have been speaking to the Women's Football Association of Ireland and they are very keen to uh, establish a history project that will look at the history of the organisation and the sport in Ireland. Um, but also from looking through the um, Women's Football Association archives, I can see that the date of the formation of the Northern Irish Women's Football Association is at the end of 1972, uh, 1972. So it's actually going to turn 50 before the Women's Football Association of Ireland, which is quite interesting because this kind of speaks to the voluntary nature of running these types of organisations because it was actually very difficult for me to find when I was just searching online what was the formation date for the Northern Irish Women's Football Association. So I always thought that the WFA was first. But it actually turns out that um, the... Northern Irish Football Association was, was first, but on their website it says that they were established in 1976. So it could be because no one's really explored the history of it, so we don't really know why that is. So there could be maybe because of the troubles, there was a gap, or maybe just some of the papers um, were lost. But in the um, archive in Prony, uh, the some of the papers start from 1973. So, um, so it could be just the voluntary nature of the organisation plus the conflict as well as. Um, causing issues and they also had more problems being recognised by the Irish Football Association than the Women's Football Association of Ireland did as well so you've also have got those um, relationship issues as well so I don't know when they were officially recognised by the IFA but I think it could be even later than 1976 so there's lots of different there's lots more areas to expand this research and um, so that's me <laughs> thank you very much Thanks once more to uh, Helena for giving a really um, interesting paper about women's soccer in Ireland and for all of that advice about accessing digital archives. Um, I will endeavour to put links to all of the websites that Helena mentioned there um, on the podcast homepage or the webpage for this episode of the podcast at least and on the podcast description as well. So if you want to follow up those things then you can do so. Um, our next paper will be given next month in December. The paper will be given by Professor Kai Schiller of Durham University. Um, he'll be talking about the fastest Jew in Germany, uh, the life of Alex Nathan. I probably pronounced that wrong, but um, I'm sure he'll forgive me, who was an athlete um, competing in Germany between the wars. So very, um, very interesting figure um, in in difficult times, uh, trying to make his way as an athlete. And uh, Kai will be talking about Alex Nathan on the 2nd of December, so that's Monday the 2nd of December. And again, that uh, seminar will take place in the John S. Cohen Room of Senate House of the IHR, the Institute of Historical Research here in London. Uh, the seminar will commence at 6 o'clock. Uh, Kai will talk for about half an hour or so, and then the rest of the hour will be made up with questions from the audience. So if you want to come along to listen to Kai, you are very welcome to come. Uh, that seminar is open to the public, so everyone is welcome to come along, and uh, we'd love to see you there.
I do hope to have another podcast uh, before then, um, interviewing more um, sports historians. But until the next episode, it's goodbye from me. Goodbye. Thank you.